Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Question. Are you thinking about leaving the Catholic Church? Do you have friends or family who have left? Or saying they're getting out of here because this recent scandal is just too much? Are you not Catholic? And asking yourself, how in the world do these people stay in the, the Roman Catholic Church? Why don't they come on over to my church? If you've thought that, if you wonder that, you need to listen to this show and share it with your friends. I interview my favorite apologist, defender of the Catholic faith, Leo Severino. Leo is a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer. He's a writer. He's a producer. You have to get his great book, Going Deeper, published by Ignatius. It's a great book. It's a must-have book for all Christians. And you need to get his movies, Bella, Little Boy, Beautiful Films, wonderful book, but you need to listen to this podcast. And this episode is brought to you by... Movie to Movement. Movie to Movement promotes a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. Go to movietomovement.com, sign up to be a theater captain, and you are a part of the movie business. When you're a theater captain, you are at the front lines of making sure these big, beautiful films are seen by as many people as possible. All right, here we go. Aloha, Leo Severino. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thanks for having me, Jason. Appreciate all your good work. Well, hey, you're a busy guy, and I really appreciate you coming on because, A, you're an old friend. Can I call you a friend? Why are you calling me old? But you're my best friend. You're my best friend. By the way, okay, so by the way, okay, you're a movie producer and, you know, you're a writer. But I think you are the most persuasive apologist I've ever had the privilege to be around. And I like to think of you as the anti-L. Ron Hubbard. You are the antidote in Hollywood to L. Ron Hubbard. Can I say that? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Don't even say that. I have like five listeners. No, so, you know, well, you know, you're a Catholic apologist. You're in the entertainment industry. Like, you don't wear an apologist hat. You don't have like an apologist ministry. You mm -hmm. do a Bible study and you teach, uh, do some philosophy classes, but you're just a guy in the entertainment business who, you, through the apostolate of friendship, you share your faith. And when you think of a religion in Hollywood, I think of L. Ron Hubbard. I think of Scientology. Mm. And so to have a Catholic in the entertainment industry that's not afraid to share his faith uh, through the apostolate of friendship, it's like maybe you're an antidote. All right. I'll take it. Like, I mean, Chester like my said, co uh, like the co-founder co of my organization, Movie to Movement, she was a Scientologist until she met you, right? I, I believe that's correct. Yeah. But I interrupted a Chesterton quote, which is a sin. I don't even remember. It was some pun. I hate puns. You know, <laughs> so one thing of when I read Scott Hahn, I take a black marker yeah. and I literally have to black out every pun so I can read his books. Well, that's just all the titles, really, right? The yeah. titles of his chapters. And he puns less now. I yeah. love Scott Hahn. He's great. And people love puns. And I guess they're good educational uh, device. But for me, they drive me crazy. OK, so Leo, I want to I want to keep this short because I know you're a busy guy. You got a lot of projects going, but I've been getting bombarded with emails, Facebook messages, phone calls, and texts from Catholics that over the past couple of weeks feel rocked. Yeah, and, well, we, should. we should. We all should. Right. And so, like, I'm not going to go to Mass anymore. I'm not going to tithe anymore. I'm going to the Eastern Orthodox Church. I'm going to an evangelical church. Uh -huh. And so what I want to, you know, you, your book Going Deeper really starts from where you and I both started, which was godlessness. Yeah. into recognizing God. And that's your book, Going Deeper, which is an amazing book. But I want to go from there to, uh, and everyone needs to get going deeper. Um, although there's a guy on the back of your book, I'm not going to say his name, that when I see him recommend a book, I never buy the book. And now I'm thinking, <laughs> I have to go back at all these books I didn't buy, and maybe they're great, because this Let's, is a great book. Well, uh -huh. Thank you for that. But yes, the back of the book was, uh, was the work of the publishers, but uh, I'm very supportive of everyone who supported the book, I'll take it from anywhere I can get it. Right on, right on. See, what's great about podcasts is I can say whatever I want. It's um, true. But, uh, but I want to go, so if you're listening to this and you're Catholic or if you're peeking over the fence and you're not Catholic and you're like, how could anybody stay in the Catholic church with all of this craziness going on? You know, Leo, I came to the church as a hardcore atheist, but I was obsessed with protecting like, human rights, advancing human dignity, protecting the vulnerable from violence. 
And sort of my door to transcendence was the human person seeking to try to understand the source of what is the self-evident dignity of the human person. That led me to the necessity of God. But really even beyond that, the revelation of Jesus Christ and the Christian teaching of human dignity was what taught me through Western civilization what I thought to be self-evident, which isn't the truth about the dignity of the human person. I guess it is to a point, but you can't support it any other way outside of the revealed religion of Christianity and really Catholicism. But I, when I converted, I, I for a year and a half studied the schism and I stood between East and West and I was really confused. And in the end, I thought, I'm not Greek, you know, I'm not Ethiopian. Um, they, the, the Orthodox churches sort of behave as national churches. Even if the West has an exaggerated, its ecclesiology on the papacy is exaggerated, I still belong in the Western church. And I became a Catholic, a Roman Catholic. I went West. But I have to admit, even, you know, I am struggling now. Did I make the right decision? Um, should I have went East rather than West? So that's my question, Leo. Uh, Should I stay in the Western church, the Roman Catholic church? Why at this point? Why? So basically you're asking me to reconcile a few thousand years uh, or at least a couple thousand, or at least a thousand years of uh, a theological debate between uh, people of goodwill and amazing saints and scholars. And by the way, I'm happy to do so. Um, I'll give you now, 20 minutes. You good. got 20 minutes. Is that all? Is that all? <laughs> as much as you want. We'll do this all night. Well, listen, I, there's there's a couple of uh, things that I would like to say about the premise kind of of the question, even the setup, the framing of East to West. Uh, you understand that there is the, the division of East to West isn't the division between orthodoxy and Catholicism or the Orthodox and Catholics, because the Catholic Church has a massive Eastern presence, uh, Eastern churches that are fully in line with the authority of the Holy Father. And that includes, you know, the Byzantines and the Melkites and the Ruthenians and a bunch of others, right? So uh, the move, I should say, the, the landscape of East to West isn't strictly a landscape between the Catholic and the Orthodox, uh, because what the Orthodox have by way of their liturgy, by way of their teaching, by way of a creed without the filioque, for those who understand what that means, um, exist within the confines and the jurisdictions of the Catholic Church. Um, so it's, it's somewhat of a false dichotomy. The shift uh, between Orthodoxy and, and, and Catholicism, I think, isn't one of getting something in Orthodoxy that you can't get in Catholicism, because if you're more prone towards the beautiful adornment and the... Um, the uh, the, the liturgy. Type, yeah, I was going to use some some illustrative terms, but yes, if you're drawn towards that sort of liturgy or even that sort of, of theology, if you want to celebrate the Feast of the Dormition of Our Lady um, and you want to have a, a, a grand and a, and, a, and a minor lance and you want all those things that are available in the East, then that exists in the Catholic Church. And, and most people may not know that. I know that very personally. My brother um, was a very, very skilled scholar. He is a Melkite Catholic. Um so I, I would, I would want to clarify, you know, the playing ground when it comes to that distinction between East and West. Um, secondly, when it comes to kind of the bigger question of, of Orthodoxy versus Catholicism, the path that you painted, Jason, I think is an insanely clear one. Uh, you said you went from, from an, a kind of atheism to somewhat of a, of a search for meaning through the human person and the dignity of the human person, which it eventually led you all the way to Catholicism. And I think that makes a lot of sense because uh, although you were correct in saying that you don't get the full, the full picture of the human, of human dignity without the revealed truths of the Catholic faith, the Catholic faith is the only one that really embraces realism as a philosophy. And I think the dignity of the human person is ultimately rooted in our nature, in natural law, and in reality the way that it is as made and, uh, and known to be intelligible by God himself. And the Catholic Church is truly the only one, and, and sadly enough, this includes a lot of orthodox uh, of theology post the schism, that really embraces um, Thomistic thought, realism as a philosophy, and ultimately is the foundation philosophically for the 
I think, the only consistent picture for understanding human dignity and the human person. And so from a philosophical uh, basis, um, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, but I would not, that wouldn't be the case that I would make for the person who's struggling in the pews now and nowadays, right? Given what's happened uh, in the church, to me, we should not be rocked. I said tongue in cheek in the beginning, you know, we should rock us, all of us. And in a certain sense, it should, but not to the point of shaking our faith or, or uh, moving from belief or disbelief or away from the Catholic church, simply because some of its members, even all the way up to hierarchy might be somewhat rotten. That shouldn't surprise us. That's been the way, the, the case from the beginning, right? If we had heard the gospel uh, from Judas, the gospel is nonetheless true despite the messenger. You know, there's the old theological adage of you don't leave Peter because of Judas. And I think that's true across the board. We shouldn't be rocked or scandalized by the fact that, um, scandalized in the, in the truly theological sense of actually losing our faith because there's people in the hierarchy that are bad. There's been bad apples throughout. I particularly am not shocked uh, and was not rocked because anyone who had kind of the eyes to see and the, and the ears to hear would have kind of seen this coming. Is there a surprise to anybody that there's been a, a, a laxity in, uh, in moral theology? Has there been a surprise to anybody that's been laxity in, in doctrine and in proper Catholic teaching? This has been on the horizon for over 100 years, and we know this because Pope after Pope wrote about it. I point particularly to Pope St. Pius X and uh, his Oath Against Modernism or his, his encyclical Pascendi. When I read that, my faith actually was rocked, Jason. It was rocked a few years ago when I actually started reading all the old encyclicals. And I realized that was what was being taught there wasn't exactly the Catholic faith that I had learned um, over the last few years of my formation. And so seeing that, seeing what the church has always taught, seeing the difference in a lot of these teachings by way of the practice of the formulation over the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 or 60 years, uh, we shouldn't be surprised. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let, me, let me ask you that, because I think John Zmirak, who's one of my favorite writers, he tweeted recently, for those of you who are, who are suffering because of um, the recent revelations, now you know how those of us who've been paying attention for the past 40 years have been feeling for 40 years. So have fortitude and buckle up. That's exactly uh, right. That is now, how did you, right. But when you were reading these encyclicals and you're like, wait, this isn't what I've been taught. How did that... Um, Oh, so what were you, did you think, should I have gone to the Orthodox Church? Because Jesus Christ is inescapable, right? Like you fall in love with Jesus Christ, you're not going anywhere. So were you, were you thinking evangelical? Were you thinking Orthodox? None of, none of that, not for one second. And it's, thank you for uh, prompting me to close the loop. It's okay. precisely, I am Catholic because I know it to be true. It's the only reason I am Catholic. And knowing that it is true, I also know that some of the truths are hidden and some of the truths uh, might be misrepresented, but there is a core that is consistent, that is pristine, that is unblemished, that is incorruptible, that is the truth. And that is where the magisterium ultimately uh, resides. Um, if that weren't the case, then we wouldn't have examples of previous. I don't know if you know this, Jason, there's been popes in the past who weren't exactly the best of people, either morally or theologically. In fact, some of them even taught things that are contrary to the faith, like Honorius, who taught the monothelite heresy, which is that, that uh, Christ only has one will. He actually taught that. Um, these things have happened in the past, and it didn't take a, a, a crystal ball, not to believe in such things, to see, hmm, Something's, something's a little off in the formulations of the teaching in the past uh, few years. And so that didn't rock my faith. What it did is it actually strengthened my faith. It strengthened my faith uh, t and it, it motivated me to, because I know that the Catholic Church is true and that it teaches truth. Because I pray for supernatural faith and guidance to grasp revealed truth, I know that God can't contradict himself. And so if there's anything contradictory in what's being taught in the past few decades, there's a simple answer. Go to the past. Go to what the church has thought throughout all time. And therein lies the truth. So it actually buttresses my faith and, and, and reinforced my faith. I can give you one particular example of a moment where I, where I was faced with kind of this clash in teaching. And I think it's relevant because... Um, 
what happened to me was I, I, I was formed in, in the Catholic faith by just kind of reading a lot of the guys that, that, that are my peers and, and, and scholars, and they're very, very wonderful, no doubt about it. But I realized that I had this massive gap in my um, knowledge, which was about previous church teachings relative to how, you know, the old encyclicals. And I realized that there's a website, it's called papalencyclicals.net that had all the old encyclicals up to like the 1400s online, just available for download. And I thought, what in the world? And so I, I made, you know, people make a, a new year's resolution. I, I make a liturgical new year's resolution. And, and I, I did this a few years back to just read all the old encyclicals across the span of a year, as many as I can get my hands on. And it became amazing to me when I started going back to like the 1930s and the 1920s and the 1800s and the 1700s and backwards, I started realizing that all those encyclicals, all those councils, they all spoke with one voice, literally the, the style, the format, the royal we, the way it was addressed, the simplicity, the logic, all of it was consistent. It was seamless. It was clear. It was beautiful. Uh, to me, that was evidence of the proof of, of, of God speaking through the Catholic Church. It was just a pristine, over centuries, literally over a millennia, a pristine line of logic, a form, a, a thought process that was always hearkening back to the past and always ever new, talking about current problems of the time, but in the same format, in the same way, and never contradicting. And there was one particular moment, there was one thing that I read uh, that I started researching back in Pope's. It was something that had been written by a Pope. Um, I believe it was a Gregory, but don't quote me on that. But it had to do with the death penalty. And I know this might be particularly relevant given the, 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 the current... Um, document about the death penalty that came out of Rome. And it was such a beautiful teaching. And it was so contrary to what I've been thought. I'd always thought that if you're for the dignity of the human person, if you're pro-life, um, then you are by definition against the death penalty, even in principle. And I knew what the, uh, what, what the catechism says, the modern catechism, you know, it says, you know, in, that it's in, in some form, at least the old version of the modern catechism that, um, you know, if, if it's a necessary means for, 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 to, to stop an end and of its own, it's fine. But, you know, nowadays that's not really required, uh, given, you know, different, uh, prudential circumstances, right? What I read of the old teaching was something that was formulated a little bit differently. And when I read it, I literally, I just about dropped out of my chair because it just struck me as so perfectly beautiful and true. And if you don't mind, Jason, I would like to take a minute to explain it. No, I'd love you to. I, I really do appreciate it. As you know, me and our business partner, Eduardo Verastegui, this is, we visit death row inmates. It's something that's important to us. And I know that I have received more emails from young people. In fact, one of them just messaged me this morning, a young man who recently converted from uh, being an evangelical to being a Catholic, who his faith was rocked more by the Pope's change in the catechism on the death penalty than it was uh, uh, by the scandals. Yeah, tell, tell him to read all the old catechisms and all the old uh, the handbooks on moral theology about the topic, and he'll see that you know the church teaching is actually very consistent, and it's still true. Um, so here's, here's what I read and discovered, right? Like say, for example, Jason, that if I, if I steal your watch, and I'm really, really sorry for it, my contrition is really known and it's really manifest. Even if I say I'm sorry till I'm blue in the face, if I have no intention of giving that watch back to you or if I've sold it to give you something of equal value, then my contrition is actually hollow and it's incomplete. There's a certain restitution that needs needs to be done in order to meet the very definition of justice. The definition of justice, the virtue of justice is giving each person his due. And I've taken your watch and I know your watch, Jason, they're very, they're very expensive, right? And I know it's worth probably about $50. And so if I take your watch and, and I don't give you something of equal value, then I'm still committing an injustice against you because I haven't restored you to what you were due. I had no right to the watch. And so I need to the best of my abilities in order to meet the virtue of justice, the, the demands of justice. I need to give you something of equal value, right? Well, say I take an innocent life. What in the world could I possibly give in restitution? Could justice ever be met in this world if I truly am contrite for the life, the innocent life that I've taken? The answer is no. There's nothing, right? I can't give my own life. I can't commit suicide. We know that would be contrary to nature. I can't. Is there anything of a material good that I can give of value? The answer is no. Unless, 
unless there was some legitimate authority that allowed me to literally lay down my life in penance, to say I forego my life, I forego the right to my life as restitution. I am giving back what I can, which is my own life, not by taking it myself, but by not fighting the fact that injustice society has seen that I have rendered, I've given, I've receded away the right to my life in a way that I can give restitution to someone. In that sense, the person on death row who willingly accepts their punishment and then turns one of the most atrocious things, which is taking an innocent life, into an insanely beautiful thing, an internal offering of one's own life in restitution for sins committed to an innocent. That's very Christ-like. You know what's so profound about that? You know what's so profound about that, Leo? You just made me realize something. You know, Eduardo and I met with a young woman in Texas who was on death row. Um, She was also post-abortive. She said she was grateful to Texas, the state of Texas, for giving her the death penalty. Not one person I met on death row opposes the death penalty. But what's interesting is she said, she's a Christian now, and she said, I know God has forgiven me for my murder, my crime. But she said, I don't really know. She said, I don't really know if God, I don't think God has forgiven me for my abortion. Mm. We told her, of course she has, but I think there might be something to it. She's knowing now she's on death row. She will be giving her life for the life that she took. And um, so she can feel God's forgiveness because she has, she's returned a life for a life, but for that abortion, maybe because... Um, there was no penalty. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know why she doesn't feel forgiven for that, um, but for her murder. But it, it could be something to what you're saying. Well, it's, just, it's the same thing. She, you got to put it in the same light of her, right? It's an innocent life that was taken. And now you are offering, in a sense, an innocence, which is that contrition, that sorrow in exchange for it. Uh, it really is. This is why you and I know there's no the old adage, right? There's no uh, uh, atheists in, in foxholes. When the bullets are flying, you're thinking about greater things. In that sense, the death penalty is an incredible mercy. If we know we're going to meet our maker, just like you said, how many people wouldn't then turn to thinking about greater things? This is why the death row was always a source of incredible consolation uh, and evangelization. This is why it was filled with uh, death row inmates and priests that were there to teach them the, the, the ability to turn something incredibly evil into something incredibly good. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean the death penalty is of itself always uh, the, the, the most prudent or practical approach. I wouldn't trust our government with, uh, with uh, taking human life any more than I would trust them for, uh, with our taxes, which I don't, right? So there's prudential cases where the authority itself is corrupt or, 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 or rigged or there's no proper system to avoid a bunch of innocents being slaughtered. I mean, I get all that, right? So I'm not saying that in practice it necessarily is the right thing in any particular circumstances. What I am saying is that in theory, it is actually a beautiful sign of God's mercy. It's a way of turning something incredibly terrible into something insanely beautiful. And to then turn it around and say that it is something that, that is that is that is somehow illicit or, or immoral. I mean God instituted it himself right after right after the flood and and uh, and met that sort of punishment throughout the Old Testament. Um, to say that it is somehow immoral or illicit is just contrary to what the church has always taught. Can I go down a rabbit hole real quick? Absolutely. I, I don't want to offend Cardinal Supich, but I want to go down a little rabbit hole. I find it interesting that the people that are most concerned about capital punishment, and by the way, I've worked aggressively for over 20 years on a moratorium on the death penalty because I do not trust our, our state with, uh, with the privilege of taking life. I'm with you. <laughs> and, uh, but um, I don't mean privilege like, you know, a great thing. It's, it's their, the prerogative. Yeah, um, right. But, but, um, you know, when I, I did a podcast early on in death penalty, and it was, it went viral. It was, it was listened to, it had a lot of listeners and I did one on the persecuted church in Nigeria and it was the least listened to of all my podcasts. And it's just so strange to me, the death penalty attracts so much attention, but then you have an entire community of very powerless, innocent people like the Yazidi, and we can't get the world to pay attention. We can't get the papacy to tweet out. For, for the Yazidi. We can't get the papacy to speak out against um, the one child, now two child policy or abortion in Argentina or in Ireland. But when it's uh, one 
guilty person who's had gone through the courts um, when they're facing capital punishment, all of a sudden the world rushes to the defense of the guilty. Can you speak to that? It's interesting. It just it intrigues me, and I don't know. I don't know what, what what's the source of that. I do, I don't know either. But what I would say is that's why the good Lord has sent you, Jason. You be the voice for those people. I know that you've traveled to a lot of these war torn areas, and you've been speaking out for a lot of these yeah. People I tried. Leo, are you there? I lost uh, you for a second. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. No. You know what? I try. You got guys like George Clooney. And his wife, they're banging the gong, um, trying to bring attention to this. And it's just really hard to bring attention to the plight of innocent, vulnerable, ethnic minorities. But if, you know, there's one blonde hair, blue eyed white girl on death row in, in Texas, I guarantee you I can get the world to pay attention without much effort. I, that they're, you know, each each case is, is a of great worth. Right. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful what you're doing to try to show that, you know, that we need to be consistent in these things. And I applaud that effort. Yeah. That's why it is so frustrating. I was thinking today, I feel so frustrated that I have to man the gates to defend the church from the inside. It's like in the military, when I was an infantryman, we would do a cordon and search. You had to make two, um, you would circle like a village. You'd have one company of infantrymen facing out and the other com- company of infantrymen facing in, you know, and, no. and it's so frustrating that we have to sort of do a cordon in search of, well, of our own church when there's so many things that we need to be doing around the world to protect the vulnerable from violence. Well, I, I don't think those two things are uh, at odds, right? The, the very principles that make you see so clearly about the vulnerable, for example, in the Middle East are the very principles that we need to defend against interiorly. And I don't mean that you and I have any particular mission or authority or duty to be correcting our hierarchy or anything like that. What I mean is we have the duty to defend ourselves against false teachings. Uh, This is very scriptural. It's very part of the Catholic tradition. We need to know what our faith teaches. And we thus need to know what the reality is of what the church has taught over the past 2,000 years. And if we do that, we're going to be on solid rock. And when these uh, false prophets and these false teachers come out with these false weird teachings, we know that it's an aberration. Good Lord will take care of it in his time. It might cause a lot of confusions, but the gates of hell will will not prevail. That's a promise from our Lord. It's his church that he built. Uh, It shouldn't be a cause for us to have any consternation or or any doubt or any scandal or anything like that. What it should do is fortify us to just keep our own house in line all the more. Yeah. Am I right to say scandal literally means stumbling block? You know, I don't know the etymology of it, but I know the theological definition, right? There's scandal. There's two types. There's active and passive. And to take scandal is when something is, is, is said or done and it causes us to lose our faith. To, to, uh, that's passive scandal. And active scandal is to do something that's going to cause someone to be the, the, the but-for cause of them losing their faith. There should be nothing, nothing that should cause us to lose our faith, right? Well, so, t- uh, by the way, taking scandal is as much a vice and a sin as giving scandal. Right. Well, that's when I, I this is, when I decided to convert to Catholicism, when I no longer could, you know, I went through, I don't know if you went through this, Leo. It's like, okay, I believe the church is the church, but I'm going to hang out here at this evangelical church that I like. And I'm just going to, God, I'll be here. The, your church will be there. And we're kind of like a flower on the tree of that big, beautiful church. So I'm just going to be here on the flower. And then, and then I was like, you know what, if I become Catholic because I'm, I don't have my own life in order, and I don't, I don't have any hope to ever get my life in any sort of order. And I don't want to produce scandal. That was, I was a secret. I, be, I decided to become Catholic for a year before I told anyone because I was such a wreck. I thought if God forbid anyone think that I'm Catholic, and this is going to sound strange because I don't want to bring scandal to the church. I mean, the Kennedys are the Kennedy family. That's their job. But I, but I was, but then when the, a scandal erupted in 2002 and three, um, that's when I publicly came out and said, I'm entering the Catholic church because I thought, okay, okay. Um, what, what I'm doing wrong might actually lessen some of the, 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 the scandal, but I know. That's a weird, heard, that's a weird way of thinking, Jason Jones. I'm weird. Yep. I'm weird. I, I do think weird, but I, I, w- I did not want to be an obstacle to people falling in love with Jesus Christ because there had been scandal in my life that I had witnessed. That well, there's made it, there's it two took, things two. I would say about that. First is don't be. Right, whatever it is yeah. that, that publicly might cause anything to anyone, let's not do that. Let's commit ourselves not to do that. And then secondly, if only perfected saints could be in the church, it would probably be 
empty pews other than your, my wife and your wife. Um, and a few and others. <laughs> exactly. And that's <laughs> it. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, that shouldn't be cause for any of us. Yes. We're all, we're all sinners. No doubt about it, but you know, what isn't full of sin and what isn't corruptible is the church and it's known best through its, through its infallible teachings. And that's where our minds and hearts and thoughts should be most of the, most of the time anyways. And not in and of itself, right? The marks of the church are not of the church. It's of Christ. And because we're the bride of Christ, we're one holy Catholic and apostolic, right? It's, well, it's, you know, with, yes and no. So uh, Christ is and God is ultimately the cause. Right. So he's a, he's the formal cause. He's the efficient cause. He's the material cause. And, and he's the final cause of the entirety of the church. So he causes the marks in the church. But the church is also the body of Christ. So it's it's a it's a it's a deeper it's a deeper situation. Each of the marks, by the way, corresponds to one of the causes of the church of the four causes of the church. And it's a beautiful teaching that I recommend everyone look up. Yeah. And you can find in the catechism and the catechisms online. So, you know, what brought, I think, me into the church and you into the church was history, right? You, it's inescapable when you look at the the attributes of Christ coming to us through the councils, through the New Testament coming to us, through the church. Um, if you fall in love with Jesus Christ, you have to realize it's been presented to you. What you know of Jesus Christ has been given to you through the church. And so the answer to how do we weather the scandal, it's again— through the history of the church, right? Going back. Right. And um, well, this is an analogy I tell my friends. Uh, I don't really think about it. If you hear your neighbor, ha- his, his child has cancer, someone down the street's kid has cancer, and they have two months to live, that's not, that may not, probably is not going to rock your faith. But if you take your child to the doctor because you think she has a flu, the flu, and you find out two days later she has two months to live, um, that is going to, we just, that's how we experience pain, right? It's going to, I suspect, rock your faith. Um, that's why we study the theological problem of pain. But if we can understand the problem of pain, the answers to that problem, when it's our neighbor's child, we can understand it when it's our child. When we can look at the Borgia Popes and understand that, we can look to corruption today and understand that. A hundred percent. Right. Either we believe that Christ founded his church or he did not. If he did not, then we're all crazy and we've all been uh, been duped and we should run. The problem with that uh, thought is that it's, it's just not true. Right? There's so much evidence. There's so much beautiful philosophy, theology, moral theology, ascetical theology, dogmatic theology that makes so much sense. And it's the only true thing that really makes sense of the entirety of human purpose. Uh, and that being the case, then that means that the church is a church. And if we know how to behave when we have, you know, bad magisterial acts, we won't be shaken by this because we know that that's not the church. That's the sinful members. And it sounds like a convenient distinction, but it's actually true. It turns out that the church is in one part made up of a bunch of sinners. And on the other side, it has a part that is pristine and beautiful. And that is divine. Um, both of those can coexist. And when they contradict, you fall back to what is true and what has been given and what the tradition is. You said for us to read the catechism. I would say, and there's not just the current catechism. There's been catechisms throughout history, all of which uh, have spoken with one clear voice. I would refer people to a particularly good book, which is by Spirago. It's called The Catechism Explained. Um, or the Roman Catechism, which is the Catechism of the Council of Trent, or the Baltimore Catechism. All those catechisms are solid. They're clear. They speak in one voice. I would also recommend people to the website of Father Chad Ripperger. He has a great book on on magisterial acts. Um, It's Ripperger, R-I-P-P-E-R-G-E-R. I'll put all these in the show notes. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. And then I'm going to ask you five questions, give you one opportunity I do to all my guests. But before that, I just want to ask you, what would be the one thing? Have you received any calls or texts or emails from any friends that have been rocked? Yeah, rocked in the, in the sense of, wow, what's going on and that sort of thing. But uh, thankfully, no one that's, that's been contemplating leaving the faith or anything silly like that. So in a nutshell, what would you say to a friend who said, I'm thinking of leaving the faith? And, and succinctly just one little message because wow. I think a lot of our listeners there that not, might not be them but they're getting those texts they're well, getting would, those emails I, I would question them why I, I would try to point out the logic of oh so something some uh, pope or some bishop did something terrible why does that have an, any relevance or bearing upon your faith I would ask them why 
Yeah. And you know what this reminds me as a father, if I create scandal, I could destroy my children's faith because scandal is devastating. And so as lay Catholics, we have to be mindful. By the way, this isn't just a a, a scandal in the hierarchy. The laity have have been around. We've we've watched this happen. We've seen what's been going on. And we, you know, looked the other way, pretended not to notice. And so we're just, I believe the laity is just as culpable. You know um, you're you're 100% right. It reminds me of a story. There's a priest friend of mine who one day was at an airport and was going to catch a flight and there was a hired Krishna. So this was kind of back in the day. There's a hired Krishna who was, you know, doing whatever they do outside of the airport and they stopped the priest and they said, are you a Catholic priest? And, and the father said, yes, I am. And they said, well, I want to tell you, I want to tell you something. I, I, I was a Catholic and then I, I, I got enlightened and I left the church and now I'm following this other path and talking about Krishna or whatever else. And the priest interrupted this person and said, hold on a second. Let me ask, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a few questions. He said, what's the fifth commandment? They couldn't answer. So how many rites are there in the Catholic Church? They couldn't answer. What are the seven sacraments? They can answer like two of them. One of them was was, uh, was confirmation. He said, well, what is confirmation? What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? What are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? What are the Beatitudes? Of course, it was question after question that the person couldn't answer. The priest said, okay, I'm going to correct you. Never, you should never say, I was a Catholic, and then I left my faith and became something else. What you should say was, I was a very, very poor Catholic who did not know my faith. And because of that, I left it. That's right. And, and it, you know who I blame for that? Who is responsible for the religious education of that man? Who was responsible? Ultimately themselves and also the people that were putting an authority over them. That's the hierarchy. I would say his father. And I would say his father, his yeah, biological sure. father, right? He is, sure. resp- I am responsible. You know, I look at my children and say, you know, I am responsible for their religious education. You're you know, 100% the buck, right. You're the, buck, you're the primary educator of, of your children. The parents are. The buck stops with me. So I want to switch it up. This topic's been so heavy, but I want to just, I can't let you go without asking you these five questions. This they're is going to be five, ridiculous, isn't it? It's going to be the best five questions you've ever been asked in your life. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. And they're easy. You're going to know most of them. Okay. What are your parents' first names? Leonardo and Leticia. Those are beautiful names. By the way, you are an example to me of of, um, filial piety. You just, the way you adore your parents, that's uh, one of your great gifts and virtues. And I know they earned it because just every time I see your parents, I can't help but smile. They're beautiful. They're joyful. And... um, and Thank you, they've Paul. produced wonderful children. Thank you, so, Paul. Uh, that means a lot. And they, they make it easy. Where were you born? I was born in California. This is going somewhere. I know it. And I, no, I no. You know, the reason I ask those two questions uh-huh. is I want to, it's subconscious. I'm giving away my secrets. Uh-huh. I want to ground people in that they're a part of a community, you know, that they, they're from a place and they have parents. And, and uh, I think people forget that. Uh-huh. You know, we used to be known as like, I would be, you know, Jason of Scott from, you know, son of Scott from, you know, Chicago. We don't, we know, and that, that creates a sense of shame. My next question is when you were a little boy, what did you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Right on. You kind of are right. In a certain sense. Sure. Okay. What now, what, this is a special question for you because you're in the movie business. What's your favorite movie? It's a wonderful life. It's a beautiful movie. My favorite. Um, every Christmas. Now, now, what do you daydream about? I don't. You, what do you mean you don't daydream? You daydream. When you dawdle. When work's nope. getting stressful. Doesn't happen. You don't. You don't daydream. I don't daydream. No, that's silly. Like I daydream that I'm, I'm, I'm like boxing Lomachenko, you know, or I'm fighting for the UFC heavyweight champion of the world, or I'm buying winning boxing gloves. You, well, you, you know, gotta get you, I got to get you to spar with Boss Rutten. Oh, if you do that, I'll, you, you look, Boss Rutten and I, I fought. You tell Boss you have a friend that fought in the world tournament for Kyokushin. Boss, that's me. By the way, he'll, he'll, think, he'll think that's very cute. No, Boss was a Kyokushin guy. He takes that's his base. That's the that's the base of his soup. Oh, he was a so world Boss champion of all, everything. He was a world champion. I don't, of no, no, I'm not. Look, I will I will fight Boss, but first you have to you know handcuff him and tie his feet together, and he can't headbutt me. Those are the rules. He's handcuffed. His feet are tied together, and he's not allowed to bite or headbutt. And I'll, I'll fight you, him. I'll tell you a quick Boss Rutten story. Okay. I was asking him for my for my little boy Lucas, who was uh, who was seven at the time, maybe six. I said, "What sort of martial arts should I get him into?" And he said, "You should get him into jujitsu because that's really good for that age, and it develops uh, some incredible discipline, and they can learn how to defensive and all those sort of reasons." I was like, all right. So um, he, he told me a good place near my house where I should go. And he's like, what, tell me when you're going to go, when you're going to take him. 
And I told him, hey, I'm going to take him to go see it on this day. And he said, and boss showed up at my house to go with me to take my child to jujitsu. So imagine now my kid is <laughs> it's going into uh, his class for the first time and the, the, the place was packed with people and there was, there was a class going on. He walks in and behind him walks Boss Rutan. <laughs> and everyone kind of stopped and looked over like, oh, that's Boss. I couldn't believe it. Like the master of the black belt looked at, and his eyes got wide. It's like, what? And then Boss says, attention, everyone. Attention. In a real life voice, he says, this here is Lucas. He's with me. <laughs> so if he has any issues, you will treat him well or you'll have to contend with me. So long. <laughs> and he left him like that. <laughs> it was the well, coolest you- introduction ever. <laughs> I want him to, can he introduce me to some group of people like that? I want Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Let me tell you about boss. Like I, you know, I don't know how mu- into mixed martial arts you are, but you know, I'm passionately into martial arts and I think, uh, I think like, it's incredibly violent and terrible. So go ahead. Well, today I do today. You know what's on my schedule today? What's that? I, I two hours of training, mm-hmm. um, which I do every day. And, um, then a local used bookstore. I've been trying to get boss Rutan's big book of fight oh, and they got one. it in. It's $67. It's a used book. I'm going to, I'm not telling my wife. She doesn't listen to my podcast. I'm going to spend $67 on a used Boss Rudin book today. It's on my to-do list. But what's great about Boss Rudin, what I love about him is he's, A, he's a charming guy. And I always see him wearing a scapular. That's one reason I love him. And then the other thing is, just as a martial artist, he was a pioneer of mixed martial arts, who if he were in his prime today, the guy that he was would still be champion. Oh, they're not a lot of the, they're not a lot of the pioneers that could hold up today because it's a different sport. Yeah, he, but he, Boss he was, was a pioneer who, because he had not only did he have the skill set, he had the thumos, the spiritedness. Anyway, well, you know, it's I can talk about Boss all day. So he, he is an amazing, amazing man, and it was an easy switch for him from just the physical discipline of learning all his martial arts to the spiritual discipline. He's an amazingly devout man. He is, he is awesome. He's an incredible role model. I uh, love him to pieces. So it's great. And by the way, and it, when it comes to training and when it comes to you know amateur sort of stuff, nothing like this martial arts. It's an incredible discipline. You know, it's the, you know what it is. It's the spectacle, not the art that. that where the problem comes in, right? Yeah, and exactly I, I right. think that the, the the spectacle of mixed martial arts, this is uh, probably sharing too much, but when I was in the, in the 90s, when I was in college, I did Kyokushin, I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and back in the days, we'd fight in bars. We would do these MMA fights in bars. And I, I had a roommate. My roommate was a quote-unquote, I thought she she was a student at my university, asked me if I would live with her. I had two kids, and she said, you didn't have to sneak your kids in the dorm, and that you only have to pay 300 a month. So I moved in with her. And we, you know, she wasn't my girlfriend. She had her in her room. Um, but I was an atheist anyways, people out there who are going to email me. <laughs> but I, I knew she worked at this strip club, but I, I thought she was a cocktail waitress or something because I just assumed she's a college student. You know, who, what kind of college student would be an, a quote unquote exotic dancer? One day we were walking down the, to the street to the grocery store and there's this really scummy guy that put on the fights that I would fight in in these bars. And he goes, hey, Jason, hey, so-and-so to my roommate. And I said to my roommate, how do you know him? And she kind of blushed. And she said, well, you know, I'm a dancer at Femme New, And I didn't know. And she said, also, um, I make movies. And he's the producer. So this guy was a quote unquote fight promoter and a quote unquote movie producer. And I realized that the spectacle of mixed martial arts is a perversion of the masculine in the same way that pornography is in a, a, an exploitation perversion of the feminine. And so that makes perfect sense. And I figured this out. I was an atheist, you know, kid. But I, I at the, that moment, I thought, uh, I kind of see how they're related. Well, so I'm, I'm with you on the spectacle of mixed martial arts. Um, but as as an art form, it, it create it gives you humility and thoughtfulness and build spiritedness, which I think is very important today. Well, there's two things so I'll you, say about that. Yes, you you shared too much. Uh, I, I agree with your conclusion but by way of the process. Uh, you know, there's probably a lot of uh, old psychological wounds you still need to deal with, Jason Jones. Yeah, we know that. That's why I have a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's why I have a podcast. But I want to go back. You don't daydream at all? Oh, I don't know. What do like you mean by surfing? Daydream? I don't know. Like soccer. Daydream? You used to think about soccer. Like when you're at work. You do know. I think about things that I shouldn't be thinking about? Yes. In I'm not words, talking about those things. I'm talking about like, do you daydream about soccer? You mean do I visualize I know myself you love so- playing, playing soccer playing in the middle of the worst day? Yeah. Well, 
No, not really. What? Do, I'm a normal guy, but what? What? What are you trying to say? I don't do, know. I, do I sit I, around, um, you know, skylarking and, and imagining that? <laughs> yeah, yeah like you know, like you imagine you juke. I don't know anything about soccer, right? Uh, but 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 I just imagine like you know you're, you you see yourself you're like you're in the middle of work you're getting ready to sign a contract or work on a contract whatever you lawyer producers do and then and then all of a sudden you space out for a minute and then there's you and Pele and you juke them and you score the goal. You no, know, you don't do that. No, I don't. But you know what I do do is is okay. I, I, I I daydream about uh, Jason Jones and his uh-huh. pod, and his podcasts. Well, that's 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 good. That's uh-huh. awesome. That's why I'm going to produce more of them. Okay, now this the next two questions. I work. It's good. Um, you are successful. You are you know you put yourself through school, USC uh, undergrad, USC law, and uh, valeting cars. You worked hard. You had quick success in dramatic fashion. You went kind of the conventional route into the studio system. And this isn't a, this I'm setting it up for the folks who don't know you. And then you bounced and made a courageous decision to get an independent film. Your first film was a beautiful success. Bella won the Toronto international film festival. And so you, you've, you've had a success. People, there are a lot of guys that took your path that end up putting up, you know, practicing, want to be in entertainment law, but you know, now they're back in Cleveland um, and they're just, they're lawyers. They're not, you know, making movies, but you had a dream. You followed it. You it had success and a lot of young people will look up to you, but I know that the path to success is failure after failure. When you look at your career, what would you say? Was there any failure that to you was almost lethal to your career and that you wanted to give up, but you rebounded over it? What would you say was the biggest obstacle or, or, or failure you had in your career that you had to pull both over? Pull those through. That's a fantastic question, Jason Jones. I told you. Um, you are good. I'm brilliant. I'm amazing. I, I, no, it's, it's just so many failures, right? So many, so many plans that we thought X would happen and then Y happened. And we had to rebound uh, from it. Um, I, yeah, it's tough. To, it's tough to say one in particular, but I will say that. There, there was a point where I was going to walk away from the whole thing. And it was before Bella. I had left um, 20th Century Fox and made the silly decision to uh, use all of our save, all of my savings, really, for Eduardo, myself, and Alejandro, our director, to just try to develop the script. And it came to the point where Eduardo was selling clothing that they had given him for a film that he did with 20th Century Fox because he, he had stopped taking all these terrible roles and um but he still had a a, a clothing deal and he was taking the clothing he was going to a used uh uh, uh, wardrobe place or something he was selling them so he could pay rent and that had run out so we were basically down to to no money we had the bella script but we had no means to uh to make it happen uh and at that time you would have thought it was a it was a terrible thing but you know what did we do we prayed and we accepted somebody gave us an all expense trip to go to um, to Rome to meet uh, Pope John Paul II, and we got his blessing. And when we came back, it uh, we found our our investors, and we did Bella. So I don't know if that was, was so much a failure, but it was certainly a difficult time where we could have we could have gone one way or the other. Decided to to call it quits or keep at it, and and thankfully we had the faith to keep to keep at it. Does that answer your well, question? You know, the, yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and and I want to interview you sometime more in depth about the early years before Bella so people know it didn't come easy. People, they, they look, and I say the entertainment industry is a bunch of people holding on driftwood to driftwood, but they look at each other and they imagine everyone else is like in a cruise liner. But, <laughs> you know, right. but, yeah. but everyone, I mean everyone, you look at James Cameron, he's holding on to a piece of driftwood. Oh, yeah. A- Everyone in that business is struggling and they're addled by this desire to create and this desire to create pushes you past your limits. And, and, and that's why I'm grateful to you guys for bringing me into the film business because that's how I am in my apostolic work. I'm addled. Um, David Mamet says your teeth itch. And the only thing that makes your teeth itching for him is writing. For me, it's, it's the only time my teeth aren't itching is when I'm a mile from ISIS with the Yazidi, you know? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so that's why we, we do what we do. So it's good for people to hear it's a struggle. My uh, here is, my, when, you're, when my teeth itch, I see, I see a dentist. <laughs> yeah, don't talk to me about dentists. I've been to the dentist three times. I had my wisdom teeth out last week. <laughs> did you really? Uh, yeah, we'd have done this interview a week ago, which I did. I did an interview a week ago. I was on, I was on Vicodin. It would have gone much better. I, I, might, <laughs> I shouldn't <Probably>. say that. <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm advocating drug abuse. Okay, 
So this next question, it's not a question, it's an opportunity. And I, I, I came up with this question for me because there's so many people in the world I owe apologies to. So it's been kind of scary. I've asked this question to all my guests and the answers have been serious. Like they've been real answers. They have been politician answers. They have been things I've never expected. So this question is not a question, it's an opportunity. Is there anyone in the world living or not living who you never had a chance to apologize to that's out there that you just wish you could say you're sorry to? Uh, let me think. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty. Would it be uh, prudent for their sake or my sake for me to mention them? No. Um, yeah, no, no, I have to say their names. Yeah. No, so there was, or even what it is. You know, but just so maybe they know there, who it is. There, there's one, one in particular that comes to mind. I remember when I did my first general confession after um, – you know, I came to the faith, as you know, very late. I grew up Catholic, but it meant nothing. I didn't take it seriously. I didn't have my first communion until till I was uh, already out of law school. But um, I remember being a kid and being on a, a monkey bars with my brother. And I remember that there was someone on the monkey bars with us, two people. One of them slipped. And when they slipped, they said a curse word. And or, uh, it was a blasphemy, actually. And... The other girl on the market bar said, that's a blasphemy. You shouldn't, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. And I, I remember us laughing at her because we just thought it was the silliest thing in the world. All right. And so girl on the monkey bars, you were right. We were wrong. I'm very, very sorry. See, that's beautiful. That's the, that's the type of answer I love to hear because all of us are addled by things that are like, it, that sounds in Hawaii and we call that manini or small. But that little thing from when you were a boy clearly is in your mind all the time, right? It was. It hasn't left me. I mean, it was, her words struck me to this day. Well, now you had a chance to say an apology. Brother, there was so much that I could talk to you about your, your um, work in the entertainment industry, our work together, and what a great privilege, life-changing um, privilege it has been for me to work with you. But what I wanted to do is of all the people in the world, I thought, who – what I want to answer the texts and emails and Facebook messages I'm getting from people whose faith has been shaken. And it was, it was like Leo Severino. So I thought I got to have Leo on my podcast. And I thought there's no way he's going to be able to make time. And I promised oh, you, you I'd keep it under 20 minutes and I lied. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go to confession. Jason, uh, right. the, the feeling is more than mutual. Thank you for all your incredible work. You really opened up our eyes, particularly me, to the, to the world of, of pro-life and the importance of that work and how it needs to be priority for all of us. So thank you and God bless you for all your work, brother, your inspiration. All right, brother. Well, your, your film that you let me be a part of, Bella, you take all my pro-life work and put it on the scale next to Bella and it doesn't even tilt the scale. So it's just been a blessing to be a part of that film and work with you. All right, brother, get back to work and make your next movie. On it. We've got three in the pike in the pipeline, so please pray for us. Every day. Thanks, man. Thank you, Leo Severino. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow me because I am relentless on social media. You can follow me on my personal Facebook page because I like to have a conversation with my friends. You are my friend. I also post a lot on Instagram, a little bit on Twitter. And go to my website, movie2movement.com. That's www.movie2movement.com. And you can find out about my latest film projects. Talk to you next week.